be reading verses uh, 13 uh, down through verse 31. Uh, This is the Word of God, and it is such a joy uh, to gather together and and publicly uh, read the Word of God and hear it together. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and, and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For a notable sign has been performed through them, is evident to all the inhabitants of uh, Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them not to speak no more, to speak, excuse me, no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than uh, to God, you must judge. For we cannot speak but of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the, man, uh, for the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to, uh, to God and said, Sovereign Lord, you who made the heavens and the earth, the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and his anointed. For truly in this city were gathered together against you, against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And and now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together uh, was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continue to speak the Word of God with boldness. Let's uh, pray this morning for our sermon. Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we just come into Your presence today and ask that You would speak to us uh, through Your Word. Uh, Lord, I think I missed in my prayer, Ken, Lord, our brother who can't be here today and isn't feeling well, we just pray that You'd encourage him and strengthen him during this time and help him to get over his illness. But Lord, we do ask that you in your presence uh, would be here right now as we uh, hear your word. Lord, I just pray that you would give me the words to say that your uh, spirit would be upon my my lips, Lord, this very moment. But Lord, uh, the authority comes from the word of God that you uh, spoke through the prophet Luke and wrote down in the book of Acts. And so, Lord, may we hear your voice today and may you build us up and encourage us and strengthen us. Give us a boldness. 
to reach out to others, to share our faith, to speak confidently uh, of what you have done for us and in the the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. In your precious uh, name we pray. Amen. As we begin this morning, I I want you to think for a moment of of the world that we live in. And maybe some of us are are worried about uh, the direction of our country and the way that America is going. And we seem at at various times to be perhaps losing uh, some of our freedoms or it becomes more difficult to speak out about uh, who Jesus is or or take a stand on on things that are, are basic to uh, behavior and, and ethics. You think of Christian business owners who are, are told what sort of health insurance they need to buy for their employees and, and even to the point where it needs to cover medical, uh, for, well, not medical, but procedures that, that, that are abortions and such things. Or you think of Christian business owners even being persecuted because they don't want to participate in, in homosexual weddings. I want you to answer, ask this question for, for yourself this morning. How do we respond if the government tells us to do something that is wrong? We might get to a day and age in, in the future, I hope we don't, but we might get to a day and age uh, in the future in our country where it becomes harder to gather as the people of God. Churches in the future might even go through things like like losing basic tax-exempt statuses if we don't uh, say certain things or if we do say certain things. We live in a world, and we have always lived in a world, where people are hostile towards God. It's not unique to our day and age. How do we respond if the leaders, the government, or people around us tell us to do something that is wrong. Tell us to do something that is contrary to the Word of God. I think if, we, if our country begins to go in a, in a direction that makes it harder to, to be a Christian, I think what will happen is we will, we will see who the real Christians are. People that are just acting on Sunday. People who take it for granted perhaps will show up less and less in worship. We need to recover a measure of boldness? How do we respond to opposition to the faith? And this morning we continue with our theme of boldness and you can see it appear a number of times in our, in our passage. In verse 13, now they saw the boldness of, of Peter and John. You can see it uh, at the end of the passage where they say, um, where they ask in, in their prayers. And it says they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. We live in one of the freest countries that has ever existed in human history, and yet we can be shy about speaking the faith. We can be intimidated by talking to someone. What, what will they think of me if I bring this up? What if they don't like me? Sometimes I think in situations where it is the most easiest to speak up, we don't have to fear being thrown in jail, I think sometimes we as Christians are the most intimidated not to speak up. You think of churches in foreign countries in China or in the Middle East where they cannot publicly share the Word of God, and yet as the Lord blesses them, the church has prospered. 
It has grown like wildfire, and there is a boldness in the sharing of the Word of God. Well, as we begin to answer this question, how should we respond to the opposition to the faith? The first thing this morning is we must obey God rather than men. As much as it depends upon us, we should in our daily lives obey authority figures that God has placed over us. But when those authority figures come into conflict with the higher authority, God Himself, and they tell us to do something that is contrary to the Word of God, boldness requires us to stand on the Word of God. We must obey God rather than men. And so we have here in our passage a situation where the leaders have have begun to tell Peter and John, don't speak anymore about this Jesus. You did this miracle. We can't deny that you did this miracle, but we don't want you to talk about it. Because if you talk about it, people might actually believe Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God. It might actually challenge the authority and the, the power of the leaders. And so there is in this situation a sense where the leaders, I think, are actually intimidated by it. They're intimidated by Peter and John, even though they have the authority of the Sanhedrin behind them, the the authority of the Jewish rulers, and to some degree the authority of Pontius Pilate and Herod, they are still intimidated by these two men preaching and teaching the truth. Look at verses 14 to 17. But seeing the man who was healed beside them, uh, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, uh, so they usher Peter and John out, and they said, it says, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no farther among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. You'll notice as we go down in the passage, in verse 21 it says, But when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the, peop- because of the people. For they were all praising God for what had happened. The, the public opinion... The excitement around this miracle has swung in the direction of Peter and John, and they are praising God. And so these leaders are intimidated by Peter and John, and they're even intimidated by the crowd. They're they're saying to themselves, you know, we really can't do anything here. Public opinion right now is on their side. And if if we punish them, if we publicly persecute them or put them to death or do something, Boy, we're going to get ourselves in trouble. There's a a motivation here to kind of retain their own power, a sort of selfishness that that is driving them. I think it's important for us, firstly, as we look at these this few verses here, to to realize how insecure the leaders of the people are. They've seen these things. They don't like it but they're in this awkward position where they can't do anything about it. And so they, they, they lash out and tell Peter and John, you better not say anything. 
It's an interesting phenomenon, I think, and you can see it in people's lives that sometimes people react to Christianity hostily because they're actually intimidated by it. Because they actually don't like what it's doing. Or maybe they don't like the fact that it's spreading or that people are actually believing it. One of the phenomenons that you, you see today in our world, I think, is, is in the area, uh, there's a group of people and they kind of get dubbed uh, the New Atheists. Uh, there's a couple different people that have written some books. One guy is named Richard Dawkins. Uh, there, there's a couple others as well. And they've published some recent books in the last five or ten years against the Lord Jesus and against God. They deny the existence of God. But they get angry about it. They get angry that, that people would be so naive to believe in, in such an idea that there is a God. And, it, and it, I'll tell you what, it gets worse on the Internet. You know, they have their little websites and they hang out. And, and if you ever go there, I mean, some of these people just drip with, with vitriol against believers and against this whole idea and concept that there really is a God. And, and you scratch your head for a minute and you have to ask yourself, if you really believe this God isn't real, why are you so angry at the idea of a God? Why, does this, why are you not shrugging it off? You know, those of us um, who maybe grew up in public school and, and, and um, maybe we had friends who believed that Santa Claus was real. And of course we know, uh, spoiler alert, right? We know that, that Santa Claus isn't real. And, and, but, but none of us, you know, when I was a kid, I think I was probably the kid that spoiled it. You know, I'm like, haha, Santa Claus isn't real. But, but I didn't get angry, right? I, I, didn't, I, I thought they were silly for still believing it. I maybe felt a little sad that their parents had told them Santa Claus was real. But I didn't get angry because I knew Santa Claus wasn't real. Why do these new atheists, as they're, they're so-called, who really... In, in the scope of atheisms and people who have written arguments against God, uh, while none of them are true, uh, the new ones don't even have good arguments. They, they just they, they recycle old things that have been refuted, and, and they just they get very blustered. And, and there's a lot of smoke and hype, and, and it's almost like if I shout louder, people will actually listen to me more. But why do they get so angry? I don't know that these people are necessarily intimidated uh, in the same way that the leaders here in our passage were intimidated. But there is a troubling insecurity that goes on. And sometimes we, we see this in our world. It's, it's like the, the bully in their playground who has to, to prove that they're right and prove that they're stronger and prove they're more powerful by putting other people down. And sometimes this is exactly why people oppose Christianity. They have something to prove about themselves. These leaders have to hold on to their power. And, and the reason I bring some of this out is don't let other people intimidate you. You know, the bully in the schoolyard who, who comes up and he maybe rolls up his sleeves and he gets really big and gruff in you, it's, it's to intimidate you. It's to make you feel a certain way so that they, they back down. We were just with my family watching the movie. I, I just introduced them to the movie Back to the Future 
Okay, and and you, maybe if you remember the movie, this this guy by the name of Marty McFly, he goes back in time and he meets his dad and mom, and and he actually interrupts them in the first meeting, and 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 they, if they don't meet and get married, he won't exist. And his dad is a wimp. His dad is is not even a nerd, just a, just a real wimp. And and Marty McFly has to teach his dad how to stand up to this bully Biff. And and he finally does, and that's kind of part of the climax of the movie, that and getting back to the future. But but you know how it is when sometimes when you stand up to a bully and you don't even have to say anything, just the very act of standing brings confidence to you and can cause the bully to back down. Let me encourage you. Don't be intimidated by people who want to stand against Christianity. You know who Jesus is and you know that the Word of God is the truth. And don't let the the bravado and, and the brazenness of other people intimidate you. The Word of God is true. The second thing I want you to notice just in these few verses is notice how the leaders choose to disbelieve. Even what is evident before them, they choose to continue in unbelief. Look at verse um, 14. It says, But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. Look at verse 16. For a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. How many times in, in the New Testament did Jews demand signs that Jesus was real? It happens in our day, right? People demand signs as well. But here they have one. And it is plain. And they should at least be saying, hmm, Maybe we should listen to what they have to say. Maybe there is something going on here that they have the Word of God. Because we did see this sign. But no, what do they say? Well, there's this sign. We can't deny it. But we don't want to believe what they're saying is true. I tell you, this happens in the hearts of unbelievers on a regular basis. This is pathological to what it means to be an unbeliever. If you listen to the words of Romans, chapter 1, verses 19 to 20, it says, For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men. Now listen, this is the unbeliever. For who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth? For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, has been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. They cannot deny it. There is no argument against God that holds water. Why? Because the evidence is all around us. You came in this morning. How many of you saw the sun? It rose this morning, right? Even even with us setting our clocks back, the sun rose. What a shocker, right? Scripture tells us that God has a covenant with the sun and the moon so that it will rise and set every day. 
It's not merely a product of nature, an accident that this happens. It happens consistently because God is a God who upholds the laws of the universe. Why does physics work? Why, why does science work? Why does the electricity, when I plug it in, I can guarantee that it's going to work because there are certain laws that it has to abide by. And, and if it doesn't work, it's not because the universe is falling apart. It's probably some error, human error, like the switch blew out or something. But why is this so regular and consistent? Because God upholds the universe. You go outside and you see evidence everywhere of His mighty power. It is not that there is not enough evidence about God. Even more, there is the Word of God. There is the testimony that God raised Jesus from the dead. It is all around us the truth. And what do human beings in their sinfulness do? They suppress it. They hold it down. It is exactly what the leaders are doing here. We see that this miracle took place. We can't deny it. But we don't want to hear the truth. Do you see how that encourages us? Do you see how that that gives some strength to you to say, you know what? I, I really don't have to be intimidated. The atheists will come with their arguments. The atheists will bring out things like evolution. The atheists might know more about science than you or I. Real science. But we don't have to be intimidated because the evidence that God exists is all around us and even more, it is in His Word. So, as we move through this passage, the leaders demand the apostles keep quiet, verses 17 and 18. But in order that it may spread no farther among the peoples, let us warn them to speak uh, no more to anyone in his name. So they called them in and charged them not to speak or teach with all the name of Jesus. So then Peter and John respond by saying, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. But we cannot but speak of what we have seen and what we have heard. Some translations will say we must obey God rather than men. You see, there is an order of authority in our world. And God is the ultimate authority. And God delegates authority. God is the one who establishes leaders. God is the one, Scripture teaches us, that has put governments in place. And so, President Obama is president not just because he was elected, but it was because it is part of the plan and purpose of God. And the authority that the president has derives not only, according to our Constitution, from the people, but ultimately, it derives from God Himself. And so, whenever there is this this order of, of authority... And, and one of the lower authorities tells us, you better do something here and it's wrong, but I want you to do it anyways. We have to appeal to the higher authorities. You see this in our world, right? If the local government sets up a law that, that isn't right, where do we take it? To the state government. If the state government sets up a law that isn't right or is unconstitutional, where do we take it? To the federal level. If the federal government has a law, where do we appeal then? to the Supreme Court. And that's just within the confines of our government. 
If my child, they're not my authority, but if my child is riding in the car and tells me, Daddy, why don't you run this stop sign? I can't just say, well, you know, I'm, I am the head of my house, so if I want to do this, I can go and do this, right? No. I have a higher authority over me. In that, in that case, the government put the stop sign there for good reason. Inside the church, pastors and elders, I myself am under authority. I don't have the right to stand up here and say anything except what the Word of God says. Now, obviously, I'm, I'm making some illustrations and I'm, I'm uh, adding some applications, but I'm trying to show you that this comes right from what Scripture says. And why is that? Because my authority is not my authority. It's derived authority. It's the Word of God. God Himself who has spoken that has the authority. And, and this is true in all of life. So when anyone ever in authority tells you to do something that is wrong, you appeal to the higher authority. And even if the highest authority in our land instructs us to do something that is not right, or that violates the Christian conscience. You know, we don't have to go out with pitchforks and, and, and uh, you know, torches and say, let's start a revolution. But we can say, I have to obey God rather than man. You see, each one of us is ultimately accountable to God. Do we really believe that? You know, we read that Psalm 139. Where can I go from your presence? That each one of us has to answer to how we, for how we live our life ultimately to God. In the earthly life, in the here and now, we do answer to our governments. But if the government tells you to do something that is, that is morally egregious, an extreme example, they, they tell you to go and kill someone. They tell you to turn someone in for preaching the gospel, to hand them over to the state. We have to obey God rather than man. Thankfully, we live in a country where this hasn't happened. But we should pray for Christians because there are Christians all over the world who live in countries who face this fear every day and have to decide, am I going to obey the government, the guys with the guns, the guys who can kill me? Or am I going to obey God? This is why Jesus says, do not fear man who can only kill the body, but fear God. God is the highest authority. This is how we respond. Let me just notice, note for you one more item. And it goes back to this idea of boldness and this lack of being intimidated. And I intentionally put this after our discussion with the government, but, but look at verse 13. Out of, in the passage, this actually comes first. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. One more thing that can intimidate us. Sometimes we're intimidated by a lack of education. I've been in situations like that. You're talking to someone, they know more about the world, more about life. Uh, maybe they even know the Bible better than me. Maybe they know Greek and Hebrew better than me. And you begin to talk and they have arguments against them and the arguments against you and the temptation can be to be intimidated, 
to say, well, you know, I, I, don't, I, I didn't go to college or I don't have a master's degree. In the, what, what can I say to this person? I tell you, Peter and John were not studious scholars. They were blue-collar guys, if we can use that expression. They were fishermen, laborers. If they lived in today's world, they would be the guys that work in the factory. This boldness, this knowing how to answer the opponents and what to say, came because they spent time with Jesus and they spent time learning from Jesus God's Word. We can put a lot of status behind degrees. And I'm not speaking against education. I think education is a good thing. But don't let someone with more education intimidate you if they don't believe in God or they're hostile to the gospel and you're trying to share your faith with them. Scripture says this in Psalm 119. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all of my teachers, for your, en- for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged because I have kept your precepts. The Word of God instructs us. And if you use the Word of God as your weapon and take the Word of God and learn it and study it and seek to obey it, the Lord will cultivate you with boldness. And the Lord Himself in His Word will give you the answers to say. You might not ever have studied philosophy and you might encounter someone that pulls out all of these fancy arguments why God can't be real. But you have the Word of God. And if you study it and meditate on it and hide it in your heart, you will have all the answers when it comes time to be bold. You will know what to say to those in authority. And not only will you know the answer, but you'll have a a godly wisdom to answer them in a winsome way. To to be, as Jesus says, um, wise as serpents and as innocent as doves, doves. God equips His people. God gives us the truth. And the truth is established by God Himself. And this brings us then to our second point this morning. We need to take comfort that God is sovereign. How do we, how do we answer oppositions to the faith? How do we respond when those pressures come? Do you take comfort in who God is? Look with me, if you will, as we go again down through their pa- our passage. Look at how immediately Peter and John and all the believers, as soon as they're set free and released, they go and pray. They go and pray. It, it, they, they don't go and, okay, well, now, we had some really good arguments against us here. Let's, let's start a study session. You know, let's make sure we read all that the rabbis have said so that we know how to answer them. Now, they probably did continue reading the Word of God, but, but, but they didn't break out the, the scrolls. They broke out the prayer room. Look at verses 23 and 24. And when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. 
And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord who made heaven and earth, the sea, and everything in them. And, and then the prayer continues. But I want to I pause there for now. They go to God in prayer. And the reason they go to God in prayer is who God is. God is sovereign. God is in control. God is the most highest and powerful of all beings. The One who created all things, heaven and earth. Look at how they address Him. Sovereign Lord. Uh, To be sovereign means to be a king, to be a ruler, to be in charge. The the idea of, of sovereignty is to say that all things are under a person's control. In the ancient world, kings were called the sovereign because all that was in their territory or their land uh, was under their authority. They had the right to make laws, to punish people, to bring judgments. God is a sovereign over all His creation. Everything that God has made is under His control. Heavens, earth, everything in the earth, space, and all of time. Because God has made it, it is under His authority. Think with me here. Who made the angels? God. What happened to some of the angels, right? They rebelled. Satan fell. Who made Satan? God. Who's ultimately the boss, the authority, the sovereign, even over the evil one? God. Remember Job? Remember the beginning of the book of Job? And, and all of the angels, the heavenly realms, they're, they're gathering in the presence of God. And, and for some reason, Satan is allowed to, to come into the presence of God after, after roaming the earth. To touch Job. To allow even these most horrible tragedies to happen. For, for Satan to do anything, he has to get permission from God. God is the one that kind of brings Job to to Satan's attention. Well, have you considered my servant Job? But God is so sovereign that He says, if you are going to afflict Job, you can only go this far, no farther. It starts out as you cannot touch him at all. And then, when, when Satan takes everything that Job has away, God says, and he has to give Satan permission, okay, You can afflict him with illness, but you cannot take his life away. God says, and God allows at the time of these these disciples for them to be persecuted. But God is the Sovereign who allowed this to happen. So much so, that God is the One who even allowed His own Son to, To be killed. The most horrendous crime, the most awful travesty and miscarriage of justice in all of human history. And for it to take place, God had to allow it. The leaders, 
these people that were raging against God and rebelling only were able to kill Jesus because God said, all right, I'm going to let this happen. And he let it happen because it served his purpose. And he let it happen because only in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ can our sins be paid for and can we have forgiveness of sins. Look with me in verse 27. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servants, uh, holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had been had predestined to take place. And they back this up. They support this, if you will, by appealing to Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2 is about Jesus and what will happen through Jesus. And it says, The Gentiles and the nations rage against God. They are angry and living in rebellion. It's a picture of all sinners. But even more, it, it narrows the focus and says, There are leaders with power, kings with big kingdoms, and they want to oppose God. And they want to oppose God's anointed one, the, the, the line of David, and ultimately they want to oppose Jesus Himself. And the psalm goes on and it says, what does God do? God sits in heaven and He laughs. He he chuckles, if you will. Maybe, I don't know what it sounds like, but I maybe take a little liberty here and want to say, you know, it's one of those big, God doesn't have a belly, but it's one of those big belly laughs. Like, <laughs> you're going to attack me? I made you. I made you the king. Guess what, guys? The only reason you can breathe is because I'm letting you. He laughs. You want to rebel against me? He laughs in our day when, when people want to pile up all of these arguments and tell us all of these reasons. Well, God can't exist and resurrections really don't happen and, and Jesus wasn't real. And he goes, <laughs> okay, that's not a very good laugh, but he laughs. And what does, Jesus, what does God do? It, it says in the psalm, that He puts the Lord Jesus on the throne. I have it somewhere here. Psalm chapter 2, verse 5. Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in fury, saying, As for Me, I have set My King on Zion, My holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to Me, You are My Son. Today I have begotten You. Ask of Me and I will make the nations Your heritage, the ends of the earth, your possession. What does God do in Jesus? He establishes His kingdom. He says, I am the boss. I have this predestined plan. We don't like that word sometimes. But God predestines all things. Scripture tells us that. Isaiah 46.10 That God is one who, quote, is declaring the end from the beginning from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand. I will accomplish my purpose. 
Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him, now get this, who works all things according to the counsel of His will. God has a plan for all things. The life that you have, the trials that you are going through, do not surprise God. God isn't, when bad things happen, God isn't guilty of causing them. But God, for some unknown reason, has allowed them to be part of His sovereign plan. And in that sense, all things are predestined by God. Now we are responsible, yes, for how we act. We are culpable when we disobey God. We can't say, well, God, this was just all part of your plan. Because God has made His will known to us and told us how we should act. And yet, great tragedies, great evils, God uses for His end. And I don't understand this all the time. And it can be very painful when hardships happen to us. But we have to trust God. And it says in Scripture that God's ways are not our ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so God's ways are higher than man. His thoughts higher than my thoughts. But I tell you this. God did this. Allowed great evil to happen to His one and only Son because it was part of His predestined plan. And it was used to bring glory and honor to God. You take these things and you take them back to the cross of Christ and you say, I don't understand why God is letting me go through this right now. But I do understand that He let Jesus Christ suffer because it saved me. And sometimes He lets things like this in this passage, persecution, come upon the believer because He's actually going to spread His Word. You see, the other part of that psalm, Psalm 2, is that the nations are now the inheritance of Jesus. And the way that God is exercising this heritage to the ends of the earth, making them His possession, is He is taking the Word of God and He is spreading it. So that people from every tongue, every tribe, every nation come before Jesus and believe in Him. And and you see it in Revelation in chapter 5, before the great throne, people from everywhere come and they worship God. And they do it because God accomplished His salvation. That God, through the work of Jesus, brings in the church of God, spreads His Word because it's part of His sovereign plan. You and I can go before the Lord and really pray. Really pray because God is in control. You face some sort of opposition to the faith. You face some sort of hardship in your life, some sort of incredible difficulty that you are going through and you maybe find yourself asking God, why? Why? 
in this life, God doesn't always tell us why. He might not even tell us in the next life. But He does assure us that He is the Sovereign Lord, the Maker of heaven and earth. And that for those of us who love the Lord, God works all things according to His purpose for His honor and glory. Now, when someone is suffering, we shouldn't take that and and be sort of trite about it. We shouldn't just show a lack of empathy and say, well, well, don't worry, it's all in, in God's hands. But when there is that pain, there is a great source of comfort. These disciples did not know what was going to happen. In fact, John's brother James, in just a few chapters, is actually killed. And they're about to kill Peter until an angel intervenes. This, for the early church, becomes life or death in all of these situations. Uh, You know, we read it now and we say, well, of course God is going to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Look at what he does to the Apostle Paul. Paul hasn't been converted yet. And all they know, if they know anything in this chapter about Paul, is he's trying to kill people. Believers. But God has His plan. And so when they pray, they say, Sovereign Lord, we know You're going to keep Your Word. We know You're going to do Your plan. We know You're in control. So give us boldness. One of my favorite prayers in Scripture, my favorite statements to Jesus is the man who asks Jesus to heal his daughter and, and Jesus asks him, do you believe? And he says, I believe, help my unbelief. That's just such a powerful prayer that, that so many of us, I think, can identify with. God, I trust you, but help me right now because I'm having trouble trusting you. But I trust you, but I'm having trouble seeing it. God, you are sovereign and you are in control, but Lord, I don't know what you're doing. Help me. You see, the sovereignty of God is not a reason to throw in the towel for the believer. We don't just say, well, God is sovereign. I'm not going to share my faith with anyone. Well, God is sovereign. I'm I'm not going to pray because God has his plan anyways. The sovereignty of God becomes the motivation, the fuel for the believer It is our act of of coming before Him and and submitting and saying, God, You are in control. Accomplish Your will. Accomplish Your purposes. Use me in the process. If I can close with, with one illustration. An architect. Think of an architect. And he makes these plans, if you will. And for the sake of this analogy... The architect predestines what the building will look like. He plans it out. He purposes it. He writes it down. His counsel will stand. His purposes will endure forever if everybody follows his blueprints. But in this analogy, his purposes will stand. But the plans get worked out on the job site. And the the architect needs the builders to use the the mortar that he has prescribed because this is how the architect has planned his plans to be fulfilled. If I can make the analogy, God 
plans the plans and then plans us as part of His purposes to be the way the plans will be fulfilled. You see, the disciples don't say, well, you know, I don't, I don't need boldness here. I'll just keep my mouth quiet and God will do His plans. Because God has planned to use us. That means right now, there are people in your life that God has put there as part of His plan that you can share the Gospel with. That means when you pray, particularly when you pray for the lost, God has made those prayers a part of His plan. He wants you to pray. And and when we pray, we are coming in line with the will of God. But we are also acknowledging that God is in control. You don't want to pray to a God who is not in control. You see, in the ancient world, it was the pagan gods who were not in control. And so the the people had to stir themselves into a frenzy to try to give their God more power, if it were, by, by their sacrifices and their actions and their obedience. And you never knew if your God could do what He really wanted to do. Elijah taunting the prophets of Baal. Get him to call down fire. Maybe he's in the bathroom and can't hear you or sleeping. Just shout a little louder. That God wasn't real. Our God is real. And we can pray to Him. But we pray to the One who can accomplish His purposes and will do so according to His will. I hope that gives you boldness. The Lord wants us to have boldness, but boldness comes from Him and from the Holy Spirit. Boldness comes from knowing who He is. We need to be people who recognize that when we are serving the Lord, we are in His army, and He is the general, and He will without fail, win the war. And I can storm the trench, can share the Gospel, can can endure something very hard because God will win the war. Because He's sovereign and He's put Jesus on the throne. And he laughs at his enemies. And he comforts his children. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we just ask that you would speak to us this morning. That we would recognize that you are sovereign in all spheres of life. That you are in control. That you are the high king of heaven. There's so much more we could say about this. Perhaps many questions that we've left unanswered. Certainly many, many more Scripture verses that we could turn to. And the time just fails us to do all that today. But Lord, let us trust You. As we pray to You, we come before You, Sovereign Lord, Maker of heaven and earth, and we ask that You would work in our lives today, that You promise to grow Your children through the work of the Gospel, and You even say, Lord Jesus, I will build My church. And so we ask that You would do that. 
We know that you will do that in this world, but Lord, we just come before you humbly and say, would you please, if it is your will, grow the church right here in York County and even in our midst. For you're the sovereign Lord. Give us boldness to take that word and share it with others. In your precious name we pray. Amen.